morning. It is good to be with you this morning. It's good to gather to worship the Lord together. We are continuing our sermon series called Together. And in this sermon series, we are considering the subject and the content of our church membership covenant. And I want to begin by revisiting the definition of the church. And that may seem like a simple thing, but I think it is helpful for us to be clear in our minds regarding the question, what is the church? Jonathan Lehman provides this definition. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. He says, notice the five parts of this definition. One, a group of Christians. Two, a regular gathering. Three, a congregation-wide exercise of affirmation and oversight. Four, the purpose of officially representing Christ and his rule on earth. They gather in his name. And five, the use of preaching and ordinances for these purposes. This is a good and helpful definition of a local church. When you become a Christian, when you trust in Christ for your salvation, you are immediately joined to the universal church. The church throughout the world, across every generation. And when you become a member of a local church, it is how you live out the reality of your membership into Christ's body. And our church covenant helps us to understand how we live faithfully as members of a local church who have been joined Christ's body. If you're not a member of this church, we're glad you're here. And we would encourage you to become a member of a faithful local church as we believe every Christian should become a member of a faithful local church. We hope that it's here. Regardless, we hope you would pursue that. If you are a member of this church, then each sermon is meant to help unpack what you have committed to as a member of this church. And the part of the covenant that we come to this morning is this. We will work and pray for unity. So in our member covenant, we as members commit to working and praying for unity unity. Now, two things I want to say before we get into the heart of the message. Unity is good, and we need to work for unity. When we read about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we see that when God made them in his image, they enjoyed unity with God and unity with one another. Can you imagine this for a moment? Can you imagine an existence whereby there was no conflict there was no strife. There was no division whatsoever. They enjoyed perfect unity with God and perfect unity with one another. It was good. Sadly, that unity was corrupted through sin. Their unity with God and their unity with one another was corrupted through their disobedience to God's good command. They rejected his rule as king over their lives. They wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. And it was costly. 
And now we see the effects of this all over the world in all kinds of relationships. Unity is hard in marriages. Unity is hard between parents and children. Unity is hard between friends, between roommates. Unity is even hard in the context of a local church. And because of this, we must be diligent to work and pray for unity. Unity is good. We must work and pray for unity. In light of our commitment to work and pray for unity, we are going to consider three questions. First of all, what is unity? Why do we work and pray for unity? And how do we work and pray for unity? So first of all, what is unity? In other words, what does the Bible teach us about unity between believers? Well, in order to answer the question, what is unity, we are going to look at what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where he said, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What we see here is that unity among Christians begins with being united to Christ. In verse 1, he described those who have received encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, and affection and sympathy. In other words, he was describing Christians. One particular phrase that stands out in his description is, in Christ. When a person repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus for their salvation, they are united to Christ. Every single believer enjoys union with Christ. Marcus Johnson, a theology professor who has written extensively on our union with Christ, writes this. Our union with the living Christ is the essential truth of our new and eternal existence. In a way that gloriously transcends our finite understanding, we are really and truly joined spiritually and bodily to the crucified, resurrected, incarnate person of Christ. There is no better news than this. In the New Testament, we see hundreds of references to a believer's union with Christ. Again, Marcus Johnson writes, to cite merely a few examples, believers are created in Christ, crucified with him, buried with him, baptized into Christ and his death, united with him in his resurrection, and seated with him in the heavenly places. Christ is formed in believers and dwells in our hearts. The church is the body of Christ. Christ is in us, and we are in him. The church is one flesh with Christ. Believers gain Christ and are found in him. When you become a Christian, you are united to Christ, and you enjoy all these wonderful benefits. And unity between believers is founded on our union or unity with Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons our confession of faith is essential to our membership. If you do not confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you cannot have true unity with other believers. You cannot rightly be a member of a church if you have not trusted in Jesus 
for your salvation. Only when we have union with Christ will we be able to have unity with brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul said, if you are a Christian who has received any benefit whatsoever from being a Christian, and you have, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He called them to be unified in conviction and affection. His desire was for them to have the same mind and the same love. He wanted them to have the same mind, meaning they were to be unified as they set their minds on the gospel of Jesus Christ. What unified the Philippians was not politics, ethnic background, socioeconomic status, level of education, common interests, or hobbies. No, what unified them was Jesus Christ. They were diverse in a number of ways, and yet they had unity in Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul called them to be of the same mind, focusing their thoughts on Jesus. True unity in the church requires a right understanding of the gospel. If we are going to have unity in our church, we must think and believe the truth about the gospel. We are not unified in vague and abstract beliefs regarding God. We are unified in truth, or what the Bible also refers to as sound doctrine. Paul also called them to be of the same love. The call to unity was not only a call to agree on the right things. As important as it was for them to be of the one mind, Paul wanted them to go beyond that to caring for one another. He wanted the love they had received from Christ to be evident in their relationships. He wanted their bond of love to be so strong that no differences could pull them apart. The call to be of the same love was essential to the call of unity as it was Jesus himself who told his disciples that their love for one another would be the distinguishing mark of their discipleship. In John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Do you see that true gospel unity simply does not exist without the love of Christ being manifest in the relationships of a local church? If we desire unity, we must love one another. We, we have a great responsibility and a wonderful calling to demonstrate the love of Christ in the way we love each other. Paul loved Jesus so much that his joy was bound up in seeing local churches filled with Christians who were growing together in truth and love. Paul called the Philippians to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in one accord and of one mind. His desire was for them to be united both in heart and mind. He wanted them to be in full agreement regarding the truth of the gospel, and he wanted them to have a deep affection for each other that knit their hearts together. For the church, unity means being united in conviction and affection. Our unity with one another begins with our union with Christ. Only when we are united to Christ can we know unity with one another. When we are united with Christ, from there we are called to be united in the truth of the gospel and our love for one another. This is what the Bible teaches us regarding unity. It's in the context of local church. With that in mind, we move to why do we work and pray for unity? 
Well, I think there are a number of ways we could answer that question, but perhaps the best way to answer that question is to look to the prayer of Jesus the night before he died on the cross. The night before Jesus was to be put to death on the cross, he prayed diligently. I think we would do well to pay careful attention to what was on his mind as he faced the cross. What was he desiring? What was he praying for as he faced the cross? We find this prayer in John 17. One commentator wrote, in his prayer, Jesus has one major concern. It is that the Father should be glorified through the completion of his eternal plan, the plan to call out a people who know and believe the Father and also the Son whom he has sent and who thus have life. To that end, he prayed for his disciples in verses 6 through 19. And then in verses 20 through 26, he turned his attention to those who would believe in the future. In verses 26 through, uh, in verses 20 through 26, we read, I, Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus prayed for us. Jesus prayed that we would all be one so that the world will believe that the Father sent him. In other words, Jesus prayed for our unity so that we will be a powerful witness to the truth that he is the savior of the world. As we point to Jesus through our oneness with him and our unity with one another, people will believe in him and be saved to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, we do not need a greater motivation than this. There is no greater reason for us to work and pray for unity than the fact that our unity will point people to Jesus so that they will believe in him and be saved to the glory of God the Father. Do you see that as we work and pray toward unity, we become a powerful witness that people might be saved and God will be glorified? The book of Revelation gives us a beautiful picture of this as it tells us of our future. In the book of Revelation, we see God's people, a multitude of God's people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language, all together, though diverse, unified in Jesus Christ, praising God in his glorious kingdom for all of eternity. If we do not desire, desire to bring glory to God, then we need to pray that God will change our hearts and change our desires. Our highest 
motivation, the greatest reason we have to work and pray for unity is to point people to Jesus that they might believe and be saved and be included in this wonderful worldwide global family that is going to glorify God for all of eternity. If that does not motivate us to work and pray for unity, then nothing will. With that in mind, how do we work and pray for unity? I think a good place to begin in working and praying for unity is understanding what the Bible means when it talks about the fact that we are members of Christ's body. In 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through 14, Paul addressed matters concerning how Christians ought to conduct themselves when they gather together for worship. His overarching aim was to address divisions and help the Christians in Corinth work toward unity. In chapter 12, he spoke to the issue of spiritual gifts, and in the middle of that discussion, he described the nature of the, ch of the church as a body made up of many parts. In chapter 12, verses 12 through 26, we read this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be the sense of hearing? whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would they be? As it is, there were many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. On those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. There may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We are individually members of one body. Through his wonderful work of salvation, he takes us as individuals and joins us to his body so that we are all part of this one body. And as members of one body, we need to understand that our words and our social media posts and our actions have an impact on the rest of the body. We simply cannot live in such a way that does not show regard for the rest of the body. Instead, we must be thoughtful and mindful and careful regarding how our words and our posts and our actions impact the rest of the body. When you read through the Old Testament, you will find that the period of the judges was a dark period in the history of Israel. They were caught in this downward spiral of sin and rebellion against God. And at the very end of the book, we read this description. 
everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that statement was an indictment on the people of Israel during that period of time. Brothers and sisters, we cannot live like that. We cannot merely do what is right in our own eyes. It didn't really work out that well for Adam and Eve. It didn't work out for the people of Israel either. And it doesn't work out well for us as the church when we live in this way. We don't live by doing what is right in our own eyes. Rather, we submit ourselves to the Lord and we consider how we impact the rest of the body. If we desire unity, then we must carefully examine how our words and posts and actions impact the rest of the body. We must think of this regularly. We must think of this carefully. We must think of this prayerfully, recognizing that we as individuals have an impact on Christ's body. In light of that, the next thing I think we should consider in working and praying towards unity is the need to grow in humility. In Philippians 2, 3, and 4, Paul said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The way the Bible defines, describes humility is counting others as more significant than yourself. And not only looking to your interests, but to their interests as well. We need to grow in humility. And if we are going to grow in humility, then we must confront our pride. One of the most important ways we work for unity is by repenting of and putting to death our pride. Pride is an enemy to unity. When the Lord warned Cain about sin in Genesis chapter 4, he said, And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. Isn't this a good description of pride? He describes sin like this, like this lion who's crouching and waiting at the door, just looking for that opportunity to pounce, to overcome us. That's pride. Pride is always crouching at the door of our hearts and minds, ready to pounce, and it is deceitful. We give in to pride without knowing it. I know that's true for me. Pride is always ready. It's always crouching at the door of my heart and mind, ready to creep in in my relationship with my, in my marriage, with my, my kids, with my neighbors, with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's right there. Always ready to pounce. But if we don't fight it, it will master us. We must hate our pride and confront our pride and repent of our pride. One of the ways pride has been exposed during this COVID season is the way that some Christians have proclaimed their opinions or their conclusions about various matters as though they are gospel truth. We have seen Christians declare their conclusions about the particulars of the virus, the intentions of the government, the efficacy of masks, the safety of vaccines, as if their opinions and conclusions are absolute facts. And we have seen this from both sides of every issue. And that is most likely prideful. 
And it makes our unity in the truth of the gospel more difficult. We see this most often on social media. People tend to be much bolder behind a screen than in person. It's easy to declare a bold opinion on a controversial subject on social media. And it feels good when people who already agree with you like it or comment on it. But I want you to at least consider the possibility that your post is actually unhelpful in an area that is more important to Jesus, namely the unity of his church. We're not saying that it's wrong to have opinions or to draw conclusions. We're not saying anyone's particular opinions or conclusions are wrong. We're not even saying that it's wrong to try to persuade people regarding what you think is right. But we are saying that when you talk about these things as though God has revealed the truth of the matter to you, it is unhelpful. We don't have to agree on the particulars of COVID. We don't have to agree on the intentions of the government. We don't have to agree on the efficacy of masks. We don't have to agree on the safety of the vaccine. But we do need to agree on the truth of the gospel. And we need to demonstrate in our words and deeds what we do need to agree on and those things that we don't need to agree on. When we treat things that we don't need to agree on as though we must agree on them, it makes unity in the gospel more difficult. If we are going to declare something with the certainty that it is gospel truth, I humbly suggest we make sure it is gospel truth. Before we speak on other subjects, I think we would all do well to walk down the street to the bakery and order a big piece of humble pie. Can I get an amen? I want to suggest something to you that might help our unity. Before you post something on social media regarding a controversial subject, I just want to suggest that before you do that, you share that directly in person with a non-Christian, hopefully one with whom you're engaged in the work of evangelism. Additionally, I want you to share that in person with a brother or sister in Christ who might disagree with you. And try to evaluate and discern if Doing so helps your gospel witness to the non-Christian. And try to discern if it helps or hurts the unity of the church when you talk about it with a brother or sister in Christ. I think if we would do that, that would help. Again, I'm not trying to say what you should and should not post. I'm just saying try to think before you do. Consider the impact. Every pastor I've talked with over this year has lamented how social media has harmed the unity of the church. Every pastor, not because of what the world is posting, because what members of their church are posting. Please feel the weight of that. Please be thoughtful. Please be mindful. Please be humble. As you count others more significant than yourself, recognize that your words, social media posts, and actions have an impact on the rest of the body. Finally, I want to encourage us to grow in our love for the Lord and our love for one another. We are called to love the Lord more than anyone or anything else in the world. 
our unity increases when Jesus is most important to us. Charles Spurgeon said, it is love to Christ that is the root of the matter. I'm very sorry, my dear brother, if you should hold unsound views on some points, but I love you with all my heart if Jesus is precious to you. I cannot give up believer's baptism. It is none of mine, and therefore I cannot give up master's word. I am sure that it is scriptural. I cannot give up the doctrine of election. It seems to me so plainly in the word. But over the head of all doctrines and ordinances, and over everything, my brother, I embrace thee in my heart if thou believest in Jesus. And if he be precious to thee, for that is the vital point. Love for Jesus. When we grow in our love for Jesus, it helps us in our unity with one another. I believe Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher of the 19th century, provides us with a wonderful example. He was a brilliant preacher. He was a man of great theological and doctrinal conviction. Yet here he is saying, if you love Jesus, I love you with all of my heart. We believe that to be a commendable example. We want you to know that the elders are absolutely committed to sound doctrine. We are absolutely committed to upholding a biblical worldview. If we compromise in this area, we're no longer qualified to be an elder. We also know that it is possible to hold fast to sound doctrine and a biblical worldview in a way that dishonors Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if we hold fast to the truth and contend for the truth without love and charity, then we fail to bear witness to Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, Paul wrote, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Without love, I am nothing. And without love, I gain nothing. I don't know that he could have been more emphatic. One of the concerns the elders have expressed is the influence that some public figures have on the saints. And sometimes our biggest concerns come from those with whom we tend to agree regarding matters of doctrine and theology. If you don't know, we are a church that falls within the Reformed tradition. And we have a high view of God's sovereignty and creation, salvation, and accomplishing his plan of redemption. If you're not familiar with Reformed theology and the Reformed tradition, we invite you to take the membership class whereby we unpack that in greater detail. If you already took that and forgot, we can give you the packet for your review to refresh yourself. But there are numerous Reformed pastors who have cultivated a public ministry and attracted large audiences, and some of them conduct their ministry and contend for the truth in a way that does not come across as loving and charitable. And though we may agree with the truth they proclaim, we don't always find their examples commendable. And quite frankly, sometimes they make our work in maintaining unity more difficult. We understand that there were times that Jesus had hard words for people with whom he spoke. We understand that when the Judaizers tried to insist that Christians need to be circumcised, Paul told them he didn't want them to merely practice circumcision, but to go all the way if you catch his drift. There are times when there are needs for hard words, but if a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ uses those examples 
to justify uncharitable behavior as a de facto mode of operation, that's a problem. We understand that we might disagree regarding whether or not a particular example is actually uncharitable or not, and that's not really the point. All we are asking is that you be careful regarding who influences you and how they influence you, recognizing that truth is important to Jesus and love is important to Jesus. If someone is influencing you that makes it more difficult for you to love a brother and sister in Christ, that is a problem. If someone is influencing you who makes it harder for you to love your neighbor, that is a problem. If someone, who is, if someone is influencing you who makes it harder for you to love your enemies, that is a problem. Brothers and sisters, we need to be influenced first and foremost by Jesus. And when we are influenced by Jesus, we will love one another, we will love our neighbor, and we will love our enemies. If our love is clearly on display as we contend for truth, then we will enjoy greater unity. This is by no means an exhaustive list of how we work and pray for unity, but it is a helpful list. And this list informs how we ought to pray as well. I want to encourage you to pray. Pray for unity, for your own soul and for the rest of us, because we need it. We are weak. We are sinful. We need prayer. So we want to encourage you to pray. Pray that we, as members of the body, will live in light of that truth and carefully consider how our words and posts and deeds impact the rest of the body. Pray for us. Pray that we will grow in humility because pride is crouching at the door. Pray that we will all grow in humility considering others more significant than ourselves, looking not only to our own interests but the interests of others. Pray that we will grow in our love for Jesus, that he will be most precious to us, and pray that we will grow in our love for one another. That we would love each other so well, it would be a distinguishing characteristic of our church. Brothers and sisters, as we work and pray for unity, we will testify to the truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and Lord willing, people will come to faith in Christ to the glory of God the Father. In light of this, let's diligently work and pray for unity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, even though through our sin, we ruined unity with you and unity with others. You have provided a way for our unity with you to be restored and our unity with others to be restored. And that is in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would grant us repentance for our sins. And we pray that you would grant us to work and pray toward unity that we might be a powerful witness here in Snohomish and beyond. And we pray that you would use our witness to bring others to faith in Christ for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.